welcome to stoop down the hill to that nice cedar tree there for shade, or maybe it's the further one down, and be in the shade there. Let's pray, friends. Lord, as we come now together around your word, would you give us yourself? We pray, O oh Lord, in your own name. Amen. Yesterday was a big day in, in our nation. Yesterday was Juneteenth, and it was the first time that Juneteenth has been recognized as an official national holiday. So you probably got it in the news. It's the day when slavery actually did end in our nation, when the Emancipation Proclamation was proclaimed in Texas, which was the last place, and the news went out into that place a couple of years after the proclamation was made itself. It's a, it's a worthy moment. It's a worthy moment to be noted and to be celebrated. And there's so many stories, so many stories of people of many sorts who worked to come to that moment that are worth learning, they're worth hearing, they're worth celebrating. When I was a student here, I stumbled upon a wonderful story that still hasn't really been told. It's a story of some Baptist pastors in Southside, Virginia. Now, Virginia in the 18th century and South Carolina had more slaves than any other state. And these guys were poor farmers, but they couldn't make life work without a few slaves, so they owned some slaves. And then in the Great Awakening, they were disturbed because they were converted. The great revivals that swept across the, the then colonies, the Great Awakening, they were converted. And what happened is they noticed at these gatherings where they were converted, they noticed that slaves were also converted. And they realized that they too had the Spirit of God. And they then did the simple deduction and they said, well, they too must be like me, a human being with a soul who worships this Jesus. And then the American Revolution came along and they participated and they did what they could. And then they read the documents. All men are created equal and endowed by their creator. And they did the math. And they put it all together. And there they are, 75 years before the Civil War, in Virginia, slave owners themselves, and they put it all together, and they said, this isn't right. So they, they freed their own slaves. They began to speak. They were respected Baptist pastors in Virginia. They began to speak in the gatherings of Baptists in their state. And they began to say, we have to stand against this. It's a remarkable story, isn't it? I don't want us to miss the moment. Because what the moment does is, sad to say, but true, it gives the lie to some of the things we like to say about that time. Well, they just didn't know better. They did. Or... We like to say, well, they couldn't really be expected to do anything different. It would have been too hard for them. But these unknown Baptist pastors, David Barrow and Carter Tarrant and others, they had experienced in their awakening and their new life in Jesus something that was so profoundly good and real and new and from the beyond yet present to them here, that they were moved for wonderful, good gospel reasons. They were moved beyond all of those expediencies. 
they were moved to a place where they said, no, the gospel compels us to respond differently to this. And so they did their best. The two things that they saw that moved them the most, they saw the importance and the value of each and every human being being created in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. And they saw the beauty and the rightness of the breadth of the body of Christ. No surprise, these two things were also profoundly important to Jesus. So this morning we just want to, we're going to walk through the moment in all the Gospels that I think arguably gets as close to the way we in our world understand race as any scripture in the Gospels. Fatu last week helped us to understand in our community conversation, or two weeks ago she helped us understand that following the Atlantic slave trade, race has meant different and worse things in the West than it did in the ancient world. In the ancient world, ethnic difference was noticed. Religious difference was noticed. Our people were the ones who had this God, and we live here. Your people were the ones who had those gods, and you lived over there. So there was difference, but it was not defined as specifically per race until the need to justify the slave trade led people to begin to use racism to justify what they were doing. So... It's, it's not all that easy to go back to the Gospels and find a moment that lines up one-to-one. But there's a reason why I think this story is the closest that we can get. And not only that, but this story, the story of the Syrophoenician woman, is one of those classic Jesus moments that makes us really nervous. Right? Jesus is in this household. This dear woman comes and she prostrates herself before him and she says... You know, my daughter has a demon, and what does Jesus do? We read it, and we're like, oh my word, he just called her a dog, right? That's how we read it. And so this is one of the, the classic examples of the nonsense that happens in interpretation so many times. Sorry, I just got a vent for a second. <laughs> I just got to name it, right? Because if you know anything about the arguments that go on around this passage, you know that there are two main schools of thought. And one of them says, this is the moment when Jesus learned not to be racist. Have you, have you encountered that school of thought? This is the moment where Jesus learned not to be racist. The other one sort of reacts against that, and it says, oh, give me a break. Their world wasn't like our world, and he just called her a dog because he felt like he'd deal with it. You run into that one? These are the two main ways people deal with it. Here's the irony. Both of those ways are suffering from the same problem, actually. They're flip sides of the same problem. And they're flip sides of the problem that is fundamentalism. Now, the right-wing people, we'd expect that. The left-wing people, we wouldn't. But it actually is the same problem. And that problem is this. Pick the scriptures up, drop them in our categories, and dissect them per our categories, rather than taking ourselves back to their world and asking, how did the original hearers hear this? That's, that's, in essence, what happens with fundamentalisms. And there are many fundamentalisms of many various sorts. So what is actually happening then? And what do we see? What we see here 
is Jesus' concern for the Imago Dei, that the image of God be recognized in each and every person. And what we see here is Jesus' concern for the breadth of his body. This is a beautiful example, actually, of that. That's the way, that's not my opinion, just the, the, the story itself signals these things to us in ways that we're going to walk through and lets us know that that's what Mark's original hearers got out of it. It starts at the very beginning, right? Because right off the bat, you know, Jesus is beat. He's been amazing things going on, all kinds of stuff's going on. So he needs to get away. So in order to get away, he actually goes up into Gentile territory. And he goes into someone's house. So he, he's signaling already, just even in the framework of the story, Jesus is signaling the breadth that he desires for his body. And this woman comes in, and the reason I say this is as close to race as we understand it in our culture as we will find in the Gospels is because there's a couple of things that happen that are unique. This is the only place in the Gospels where an individual is named as being a Greek. The ESV translates it as a Gentile, and it can be translated that way, but the word is, is Hellenic. She's Hellenic. She's a Greek. And then, in a kind of a parenthesis, a Syrophoenician by birth. Right? Nowhere else in the Gospels that you get an ethnic racial marker by birth named. Follow that? So this is as close a moment as we're going to get. Not only that, but those of you who've been here before, you know, you know this, chiasms, right? The way, just the way they told stories in the ancient world. There's stair steps. Step, you take a step, you take a step, you come to the top. At the top, the whole thing turns. That's the hinge of the whole thing. It turns, and then you take parallel steps back down, and the steps match each other. And Jesus does this all the time. It's, it's not cryptic. This is not National Enquirer stuff that if you know how it works, you can figure out when the UFOs are going to land. That's not what it is. It's just the way they like to tell stories, that's all. So it was natural to them. And lo and behold, of course, this story is a chiasm. And the reason that helps us is because the note that she was a Greek and a Syrophoenician by birth does something very unusual. It's a parenthetical that breaks the chiasm. What does that tell us? That it was really important to Mark to get it in, because you don't break chiasms for any other reason. Then the hearers got that. They got it. This is a detail which he is very careful to include. So she comes and she prostrates herself before him, which is is cool, but it's normal. That's what people do before someone like him. And she tells him her situation, and then he replies with the language that we don't understand. This is one of those moments, if, if I had a time machine and I could go back and be a fly on the wall, I'm, I'd very well take this one. Because the signals in the text are not that Jesus was ignorant and learning how not to be racist, and they're also not that he's belittling her and doesn't care. He does set her up, but not to be humiliated. What we're going to see is that he is going to set her up to be his disciples 
teacher. He's going to set her up to be his disciples' teacher. So even to begin by saying dogs, the Greeks loved dogs. The Jews weren't sure about dogs. The Greeks were huge fans of dogs. They had odes of love to their dogs. The Jews, they weren't so sure. The scriptures aren't as positive about dogs as I personally wish they were. And the, the, the greatest dog cemetery in the ancient world wasn't all that far away from where Jesus is. It's this massive cemetery that they can't figure out what on earth it meant. They seem to have honored dogs in some very real way, as well as loved them as pets. So when Jesus even names dogs in this moment, he's tweaking the elephant in the room. He's tweaking the ethnic cultural difference. He's going there. He's going into that uncomfortable place. But also, how do we see Jesus interact with women and with Gentiles in general? He's profoundly respectful of them. So let's just, let, let's just assume he's being himself. Let's just assume that what we know of him in all other instances remains true in this one as well. Jesus is using an image, rather than being super direct, as he is wont to do, to get at some of the difference in this moment. But it is a little different than how he normally does it, the way he uses an image and the image he uses. Here's a possibility. Here's a possibility. It's possible that in the household, as they've been eating dinner, there have been some little toddlers and there have been some little dogs. And it's possible that it's been really hilarious to watch. And it's possible that Jesus is just sort of saying, you know, it's kind of like that, and everybody's chuckling. Maybe not. We don't need that. But it could be as simple as that. At any rate, he's, he's touching on the difference. One theologian says this, Jesus appears like a wise teacher who allows and indeed incites his pupil to mount a victorious argument against the foil of his own reluctance. He is not disappointed to be defeated in argument. As a result, the reader is left more vividly aware of the reality of the problem of Jew-Gentile relations and of the importance of the step Jesus takes here to overcome it. In other words, we know Jesus can read a person, and he sees here a woman who's got a good mind and a courageous heart, and so he sets up a moment, and he says to her the things that, her, that his disciples would have heard and agreed with. Oh yeah, he's going in space, we get. He really is one of us after all. Sometimes, you know, Jesus, I don't know, sometimes you do some weird stuff and we're not sure, but hey, you're one of us, that's cool. Right? He's setting up that kind of moment because he can read her. And then she's going to reply, and he knows it. And when he, she replies, they're going to be shocked, not for shock value's sake, but for teaching's sake. So we see this, the payoff, we see this in two clues that Mark gives us in her response, and then in two things that Jesus says in response to her response. With me? I feel like I'm making a bit of a muddle of this, so still with me? All right. She says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Mark's whole gospel is based on, literarily, it's famously based on the messianic secret. Nobody can figure out who he is. Nobody can quite figure out who Jesus is. It isn't revealed until the very last lines of Mark. This is a famous thing about Mark's gospel. 
And yet here she calls him who? Lord. Now that doesn't mean she gets the whole thing. That term can, can be small L or capital L. But given Mark's narrative strategy, it's a big deal and it's a signal. Listen to her, reader, hearer. Pay attention. She's wise. She's going to say something big. And then what she says sits as the hinge of the chiasm. The great thing about finding chiasms in the scripture is it takes me out of the equation. It's not about what I think it says. It tells me what it says because I follow the pattern. And the pattern begins with something important and it ends with resolution of that. But the most important moment is the hinge. And what she says is the hinge. And therefore, Mark himself is telling us to listen to her because Jesus has set her up to be his disciples teacher and our teacher as well about the Imago Dei and the breadth of his body. Jesus' reply back to her confirms this. He said to her, because of this word, you may go on your way. The demon has left your daughter. He respects her clearly. He does what she asked, but again, in terms of what Mark is doing in the telling, when Jesus says, because of this, it's a formula for him. He does it all the time. Because of this, this. Because of this, this. He builds on it. So he's affirming what she says completely. Because of this, next step. And then this word. Word is a huge thing in the Gospels. Word is important. Word has value. Word is beyond saying or beyond just whatever. It's got some, it's, it's, in, it's infused with all this meaning. And there is nowhere else in the Gospels, no other instance in the Gospels where Jesus affirms someone's word in this way. This is a unique moment where he is telling them to listen to her. And he has set her up to be their teacher. And by extension, everybody's teacher, whoever reads it, going out. There are other places where Jesus will affirm someone's faith. The only place where we see that Jesus marvels at something positive is when the centurion says to him, Lord, don't, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but if you just say the word, power in the word, then I know it will be done. And they says Jesus marveled at such faith. This is the only place where Jesus marvels at something positive. It's another place where we see his desire for the breadth of his kingdom. There are other places, famous ones as well. The woman at the well. Jesus sticks his neck out, gets into uncomfortable space, interacts with her. The man at the garrisons and the tombs and the Decapolis, he wants to come with Jesus after Jesus heals him, but Jesus says, no, go tell him. And so then we find later that there are people all from the Decapolis who are coming to Jesus to be healed. Because that first evangelist who Jesus set up went out and did what Jesus asked him to do. Jesus goes out of his way to sow these ideas into his teaching, the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's a, that's a, that's a parable in that moment of the say what, the who, the good what, right? Just even the name of it alone would be a tweak for people. Jesus in his manifesto moment, he goes in and stands up as a young man and he reads and he proclaims this day is all these beautiful things fulfilled in my person. And everybody thinks, isn't this wonderful? Until he then turns the tables on them. He talks about how Elijah had to go outside of Israel and how Naaman had to come in and be healed and how there were plenty of others inside Israel who could have been healed. And then they get furious with him, right? Jesus is forever pushing the breadth of his kingdom. 
the Imago Dei. He's forever pushing into these spaces. Jesus cares profoundly about each person as created in his image and about the breadth of his kingdom. So what about our heroes for this morning? David Barrow and Carter Tarrant. They were forced to give up their farms in Virginia. They realized the economy of Virginia was such that they couldn't make it without slaves. So once they got rid of their slaves, they had to move. They moved to Kentucky. Once in Kentucky, which was the frontier of that day, they actually began a small movement. They named it the Friends of Humanity. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. It's, a, it's, it's like, this must be the first faith-based, non-profit, non-governmental organization, you know, in, the, in our nation. I mean, surely. And they call it the Friends of Humanity. One of the things they did was to publish the work of Thomas Clarkson. Thomas Clarkson was a Quaker motivated by his faith who was a buddy with William Wilberforce who worked together with Wilberforce. He was the intellect who wrote behind Wilberforce, the public figure, to end the slave trade in England. And one of the things they did then was to work together to publish the work of Clarkson in the U.S., which eventually then was part of the stream that led to Daniel Webster's thought, which was part of the stream that led to the Emancipation Proclamation, which led eventually to Juneteenth because they saw something good in the Imago Dei, in the breadth of the Lord's kingdom. It was their coming to faith in Jesus that gave them a perspective beyond that of the world around them and that brought them into better space. So friends, yesterday was Juneteenth. We're going to take this moment this morning and do a little bit of prayer work as a people around some of these things in our own nation, in our own time. So our creed this morning, our prayers will be wrapped up in this. We're going to pray some prayers of lament around some of these things. And then we're going to pray some prayers of hope. I want to just give a word. So I just want to take a breath. Sermon's over. Change gears. If you need to move into the shade, move into the shade. I want to take a minute as we're changing gears, going into our prayers of the people mode. I just want to take a minute to speak about what lament is and isn't. Did you hear the readings we had from Psalm 106 this morning? We and our fathers sinned. It's true. I was not alive when slavery happened in this nation. I've never owned a slave. We and our fathers sinned. There's something healing about naming the truth. There's something that frees us about naming the truth in these things. There's something that leads us into a place where we are freed from the grips of the world around us to care first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness when we name and lament over these things. So it may involve, lament may well involve personal guilt. It may be something that's beyond personal guilt. We and our fathers sinned, right? That is biblical, that kind of lament, because it's for our good. I want to say, that lament with hope is a distinctively Christian act. 
As Christians, we're told that we do grieve, but we do not grieve without hope. And I want to say there's a parallel. We do lament. It is right to lament. But we do not lament without hope. But that hope has to be embodied in the gospel in the way that, say, David Barrow and Carter Tarrant did. And has to push beyond the lines around us. So one of the things that we're going to lament this morning, we're going to lament in three stages. It'll work like this. I'll read something. It'll just be like the prayers, and you'll simply respond. It's in your liturgy. We're going to lament along three ways. And the first one is we're going to name a little bit about our commonwealth and especially the North Shore's involvement in slavery. All right, we're just going to name some of the realities of that and say, Lord, have mercy. And then we're going to name a a little bit about how the body of Christ in our culture has, even though Jesus has overcome the world, we have not lived into that. And not only in a black, white, but in all kinds of ethnic, racial ways, the body of Christ doesn't represent fully what the breadth of his body that he cared about. And we're going to lament that. And then we're going to lament a little bit of our own fear in stepping into these spaces and dealing with these things. After we do that, then Fatu is going to share for a moment about her dreams for the body of Christ in this place, in this country, and we're going to pray some prayers of hope. We're going to turn the corner. Juneteenth is worth celebrating as well. It's worth taking hope as well. We want to catch that. We want to, we want to get that. I want to say if this is not comfortable for you, please Show me grace, but if it's not comfortable for you, I want to say believe in a gospel way that you are secure in our Lord Jesus and that lament is biblical. You can enter into this space and you will be okay. And he will be with you and he will be with us and he will be honored and he will delight. Let's take a moment, just quiet our hearts. invite you to come before the Lord and just for a, for a moment anything you need to talk about with him 